This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mintz. Bail is refused. You're out of order! If it pleases the court. To adopt this affirmation, please say the words, I do. I do. Nothing further from this court. Given the serious nature of this offence, this case is dismissed. This bonus episode of The Wigs is part of our solo wig interview series. Felicity Graham sat down with special guest Rawan Araf of the Australian Centre for International Justice to discuss universal jurisdiction, the crime of apartheid, the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction over alleged offences in the occupied Palestinian territories, the work that can be done domestically to achieve global justice, and more. This episode, we also have another special guest of the Wigs, someone whose interest in the law has started early. Take it away, Bupin. Hi, my name is Bupin. I'm a high school student in Sydney, Australia. I'm doing work experience this week with one of the Wigs, Felicity Graham. This episode features an interview between Felicity and Palestinian-Australian human rights lawyer Rowan Araf. Rowan has over 10 years' experience working in the fields of refugee protection, administrative law and international human rights law. I hope you all enjoy the episode. Welcome, Rowan, to the Wigs. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. And thanks for the great introduction, Bupin, and for your help with research for this episode. So welcome to the Wigs, Rowan. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I thought we'd start today by just um, introducing you a bit more, your personal background um, and how you've landed where you are as the Principal Lawyer and Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. So why don't you kick off with a bit of a tale about about Rowan, who you are. Who am I? Um, good question. It's something that obviously lawyers don't like to talk about themselves much, um, but happy to talk about my journey towards uh, setting up the Australian Centre for International Justice. I've always been fascinated by the concept of universal jurisdiction um, and finding avenues of chasing war criminals and other perpetrators of international crimes. Um, and I used to work as a refugee lawyer at Refugee Advice and Casework Service. Um, and, you know, this was not always the area of law that was so interesting to me. I mean, obviously, I understand that um, many of our clients and refugees come from experiences where international crimes were perpetrated against them. But I always wanted to know how we can chase people or hold people accountable to how, um, you know, to the crimes they perpetrated against them. And I knew that Australia was a good legal system. We had the laws in place. We had really great... Uh, we do have... Um, Australians have a good reputation of being um, uh, really good international lawyers and, of course, in the international criminal law space as well. Australian lawyers have been formidable in that regard as well. Um, we've had judges, international criminal lawyers, and in every tribunal we've had investigators and prosecutors and all of the ad hoc tri tribunals as well. But I was always thinking, why isn't it that they've you know, um, haven't translated that experience domestically. Um, so, you know, there came a time where I thought I don't want to be doing refugee law for the rest of my life um, because it was just so dis despairing. It was depressing. Um, you know, we were just working through the motions. Submissions we'd be putting in were not translating because the law was oppressive. It was punitive against refugees and, and people seeking asylum. So I didn't really think that what I was doing was actually making any um, impact or having any real impact. And um, I thought, okay, well, it's, I need to you know, put my head down, work on my technical skills and, and uh, gain those necessary skills. Um, 
So I went to do an internship with the European Centre for Constitutional and Human Rights in Berlin, which mm-hmm. was one of those organisations um, well known for really chasing Donald Rumsfeld um, and uh, perpetrators of CIA torture program. Okay. Um, and they had, you know, they were founded with the help of other radical lawyers in the US. Um, you might know them, the Centre for Constitutional Rights. Um, in the U.S., so those are the kinds of lawyers that I really looked up to. Those that kind of ra- radical lawyering, um, you know, in tune with movement, social movements, and uh, racial justice movements all around the world. So that was the kind of law that I thought I was most interested in, mm-hmm. wanted to practice in, and obviously it was informed by my own background as a Palestinian. I was an activist for a long time. I'm very proud of my Palestinian identity. I think it informs a lot of what I do. Um, I have family. Um, in the West Bank, in the occupied West Bank, and mm-hmm. I visit often. Um, mm-hmm. My husband is a Palestinian citizen of Israel, so I'm very connected to mm. the community here in Australia. Where in um, the West Bank are your family? Um, my mum's family is from the north, um, mm-hmm. in Tulkarim. Okay. And my dad's family is from a village close to uh, Selfit, which okay. is a small town in the West Bank. I was in the West Bank about 10 years ago, yeah. um, visiting some lawyers, Palestinian lawyers working there, and an Australian colleague, yeah. Stephen Lawrence, who he was told working me, there. Yeah, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so mainly in Ramallah, but then also mm. Nablus, Janine, yeah. Hebron, those, those bigger centres. Yeah. Um, you would have seen a lot. I always encourage people to visit. I mm. think it's the it's a. Um, I don't think it's as dangerous to visit. I always recommend that people visit mm. and they're able to really see the mm. impact of the military occupation on the ground and the policies that Israel implements to really deny fundamental human rights. Oh, for absolutely! Even just accessing roads, exactly basic, yeah. basic things. things. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I I grew up. Um, in Australia with some um, a fair bit of time spent in kind of rural Australia mm. at cattle yards and things like that, herding cattle through the yards at my grandparents' property and things like that. And that checkpoint at Columbia, yeah. um going from the West Bank into Israel and being herded like cattle literally mm. in very similar metal, high railings. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just so dehumanising. And I think, yeah, yeah, I agree. For anyone who has the opportunity of international travel, it's a bit Mm -hmm. difficult at the moment, but Mm -hmm. to go and go into the West Bank. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are wonderful things to explore there, but also really important, I think, to take the time to confront yourself and confront... And Palestinians are really there. hospitable people too, so oh, I think you'll be you'll be totally fine. Amazing hospitality. I mean, oh it's one goodness, of the things that we say we're too hospitable. Time. That's how we, you know, lost our land, oh. unfortunately, to to colonisation. Mm. Mm. Um, Delicious food and yeah, yeah. absolutely welcomed yeah. into homes. Shout out to Ali and Nayel oh, and <laughs> and those wonderful lawyers there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think there's lots of. I mean, on that point, there'll be opportunities I'm sure um, with different groups if lawyers mm. wanted to go and have uh, you know some kind of experience um, working with Palestinian organizations or groups there mm. Yeah. Mm. so um, your principal lawyer and director of the Australian Center for International Justice let's call it the ACIJ, ACIJ yep. <laughs> um, what is the mission of the ACIJ 
Right. So, look, we've been around for two and a half years mm. now. I can't even believe it. It seems like yesterday. Um, when I went to the ECCHR, they were very encouraging about setting up um, something similar in Australia. And that was because there was a gap. And the whole point of international justice is that uh, perpetrators don't enjoy impunity anywhere. And so if there was some sort of centre here, we would be the kind of, OK, you're the Australian if there was somebody that we were chasing, um, we can come to you at short notice and, and possibly, you know, consider a, an action of some sort. Um, obviously, there's more to that, but that was the idea that if you close the spaces of impunity, then perpetrators, you know, will not be able to want to, will not enjoy that kind of freedom to holiday here, for example, or bring mm-hmm. their children here, for example, or move their assets here, etc. Um, So there was that idea that, okay, well, you know, Australia's got this um, fairly independent legal system, independent judiciary, an independent prosecution service. We hope an independent police service that can investigate these crimes. Um, That's part of the the issue, I think, that I'll talk about um, in a little bit. But, uh, you know, this was something that was missing, as I said, that, you know, we have the legal framework um, to pursue international crimes, um, but there's no civil society push. So the mission is to um, bring about legal actions, international crimes litigation, um, whether that's in universal jurisdiction or other kind of creative legal strategies, undertake research and advocacy on international justice issues. So wherever there's an element really of international crimes or global justice, um, then that's something that we'd like to pursue. Obviously, we have limited capacity, Um, But I think that the work we've done has been kind of varied and really interesting. The cases that we have at the moment um, are not publicised. Obviously, we can't talk about them, but uh, we do represent survivors of torture. um, And that's given us kind of, I guess, a practical um, understanding of where the issue is with uh, problems in universal jurisdiction cases in Australia or, I guess, the broader strategy or how it can work to a level that um, Australia can, you know, say that it's doing what other countries, particularly in Europe, are doing in respect of international crimes um, investigations and prosecutions. So I think that's the broad mission, really, of the organisation. Um, the main aim is to try and push Australia to do more investigations and prosecutions of international crimes. Mm-hmm. And we have the international crimes uh, frame uh, codes, offences in mm-hmm. our law, And that was as a result of Australia's, I mean, at least I'm going to talk about post-2002. Pre-2002, we had the Geneva Conventions, at least in respect of war crimes, and there was universal jurisdiction. Um, But it's easy, I think, now to talk about post-2002, and that's because Australia, um, you know, implemented its Rome Statute obligations, um, and as a result, it amended the Criminal Code, the Commonwealth Criminal Code, and brought in, at least in Division 268, uh, a fairly, um, I guess you could say, a replica of the Rome Statute provision. So the Rome Statute crimes, known as war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, um, not aggression yet, but that's um, another issue. So um, that's what we have in our law. We have um, we have Rome Statute crimes that really are offences against the Commonwealth of Australia and the Australian people. So they've been on our books since 2002, but have never been used. Mm-hmm. Um, And there have been instances in the past where lawyers have tried to bring universal jurisdiction cases, but my criticism is that they 
weren't accompanied by a broader policy and structural reform vision that was necessary to actually implement Mm -hmm. and get authorities to do their job, which is to investigate and prosecute these crimes. Um, So the main fundamental problem that we see and what we're trying to push as a result in addition to bringing cases, is um, actually calling for and and seeing the introduction of a specialist war crimes investigations unit, for example. Um, That's one of the things that has been a total limitation because we've seen that the Australian Federal Police um, neither had the resources nor the skills to really be able to conduct these crimes. Of course, they would say, yes, these are very serious crimes and we take them very seriously, but there's been no kind of interest to really... Um, take them on more further. So I think us as a civil society push, not only calling for structural uh, reform and policy change, but also to actually bring cases, obviously not so much, but something, and at least with links to Australia, um, then that should hopefully, I think, bring about some change because I think Australia has the obligation, and not just that, an opportunity to really uh, undertake... um, it's responsibility mm. under make international law. Make a contribution mm. like other nations are. Mm. I mean, yeah. So how is that ACIJ mm. funded? That's a good question. Uh, for two and a half years, we were very limited funding from mm. just crowd support and okay. general private donors. Mm-hmm. Um, so listeners of the Wigs can yes, donate definitely. if they want to Especially support your work. Especially before June 30th, um, there will be <laughs> um, double your impact matching um, funding. Uh, we did get some funding from Foundation Abroad to part fund our Afghanistan program, which is great, and that has allowed us to employ our very first um, legal advisor, uh, Fiona Nelson, who's Excellent. a wonderful um, lawyer with experience at ECCHR in Berlin, actually. So she's based in Hobart and is going to be leading our work in that respect as well. So it's in the really development stage at the moment yes. where we're talking to some partners in Afghanistan okay. about that. And so how many lawyers do you have working at the ACOG? It was just you myself for two and, and, and a half years and Fiona, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> so it's a very small organisation yes. and it's quite nice to, to be that small I mean it's obviously been a lot of work that I've undertaken but I've I've had a really great time in trying to push an agenda um, we've found a gap in the Australian legal services no one was doing this work um, not even a lot of advocacy on the on this work of course Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch do a great job on international justice issues but I think to really bring it back to trying to find ways, legal strategies and avenues, um, not just for action, but also advocacy from a legal, domestic legal mm-hmm. uh, ability as well. And I think that's the really fun thing. Um, so I think, you know, I mean, with all new organisations, you don't know how long you'll go on for, but um, we'll be around for a while yet, I think, I, I hope. Think so. so, yeah, with a yeah. radical lawyer like you. Yeah, well, thank you, I try. <laughs> <laughs> and so what's a typical day at work like for you? a typical you? day? Oh, it's a, it's a great question. Um, Are you writing? Are you... A lot of writing and researching, okay. a lot of um, reaching out and networking, mm-hmm. um, scoping the media about what's happening. I mean, of course, we're so confronted with the Afghanistan war crime stories at the moment. So there's a lot of media reporting on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but also what's happening abroad. I mean, there's so many international justice issues that, um, you know, unfortunately for Australia, because we're such a, uh, you know, confined, sometimes parochial nation, we don't really look abroad for what's happening. But Australia's impact um, and its reach and complicity, I think, in many areas is... Um, 
you know, has its hands in places abroad, like Palestine, for example, or Afghanistan. Mm. Um, of course, we were involved in Iraq as well and in many coalitions uh, following the US uh, and, and things like that, and independent foreign policy. Of course, one of the other issues that us in a broad-based of coalition, humanitarian organisations, activist radical organisations and human rights groups are looking into transparency around arms exports control, for example, um, particularly around the issue of um, exports to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, which we think is being used, uh, the end user, at least of some parts, is ending up in Yemen. Um, mm-hmm. And obviously there's, uh, you know, huge international humanitarian law violations resulting in war crimes there. So those are the kinds of things that, um, you know, we looked at as well and are still looking into. But a typical day really is just, you know, researching, writing, um, looking at what are the ways that we can have an impact or, um, you know, finding out spaces mm-hmm. where, where we would be relevant or mm-hmm. just, I, I guess... Strategy, strategy for how you can yeah. bring about greater global justice. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Mm. So, okay, we've, you've mentioned universal jurisdiction a number of times, mm. so let's just um, what is that? sort of frame that for our listeners. Yeah. That's the idea that no matter the nationality of an accused or an yep. alleged victim, where an alleged crime took place... Mm-hmm. All nation states have a duty to prosecute the most serious crimes of concern to the international community. We're talking about things like genocide, mm-hmm. crimes against humanity, torture, right. war crimes, mm-hmm. um, atrocity crimes, That's right. they're sometimes called. Yeah. And the idea is that the national domestic criminal courts and processes can be used irrespective of a lack of geographical citizen connection to exactly. a domestic forum. That's right. So what is the current state of play in Australia in relation to using universal mm. jurisdiction? We've got this domestic legislation mm-hmm. for war crimes in the Commonwealth Criminal Code, which um, is one pathway to those types of crimes being yeah. um, prosecuted here. And you said those crimes, that well, those, mm. um, those sections in the statute haven't ever been charged uh, in Australia. but So what's the current state of play here in relation to the apparatus for this type Mm. of use of jurisdiction or um, investigation, prosecution and so on? So one thing to point out is that um, the great thing about Australia's legal framework is that it's known as pure universal jurisdiction. Um, So the idea is that regardless of the nationality of the perpetrator or the victim, obviously where the crime took place, we have the jurisdiction, at least according to the law, to in, undertake investigations and prosecutions. There are some... Um, and that's since 2002? Or since 2002. Pre-2002, okay. pre I guess you could argue with the Geneva Conventions just for grave war crimes um, that mm-hmm. there was. And, you know, one famous case that... Um, there were there was investigations in, into pre-2002 Geneva Convention um, crimes were, and on the basis of universal jurisdiction uh, was the, the investigation into the killing of the Balibur Five journalists, okay. which unfortunately couldn't go ahead for lack of evidence, I think, was the essential uh, um, uh, indication from the AFP mm-hmm. when they closed the case, I think. And that must be a barrier generally across the board because if you're talking about something that has happened elsewhere, not on Australian soil, access to witnesses, access to crime scenes, access to forensic material, 
Exactly, which is, I think, one of the main... Evidence can be lost. Exactly. And that's one of the things that sometimes I think, uh, you know, at plain, I guess at face value, most Australian politicians would say, oh, look, this is just too hard basket. Mm -hmm. You're asking us to go investigate crimes in places where Australia never was or Mm -hmm. that happened 10 years ago, and that's going to be the issue facing investigators with respect of the Afghanistan war crimes, and that's where Australians are implicated. Um, But, uh, you know, there's ways to overcome that, and I think that's why one of the things that we're trying to push is that if you can get an investigation um, to take place... Whenever the wheels of justice turn, and they do in some sense, they do take a while, um, but in some many instances, you know, they do, they do turn and there is an opportunity to get a perpetrator, whether that's 10, 20 years down mm. the track. But at least that you have had the investigation conducted mm. according to standards and procedures of evidence. And so that when, you know, a perpetrator is, for example, I'm thinking of President Assad of Syria, um, you know, if he will probably stay holed up in Syria for as long as possible and not face any uh, any any kind of trial or prosecution. But there will be a time where, you know, it will be possible. And that's why there are a lot of investigators and lawyers working all around the world to document mm. cases, mm-hmm. to secure evidence, to analyse that evidence, so that when it is possible that this, you know, can, can happen. And there's, uh, you know, mechanisms that are being set up now, recognising that this evidence issue is the... the you know, really big barrier. Um, and they're recognising that with respect of Myanmar, there's like a mechanism that's being set up, being funded by the UN to document and uh, secure evidence, etc. Same with Syria. Um, and I think this is what we say, that um, countries uh, that have capable legal systems and have the capacity and ability to do that, that this is where their opportunity is to assist and contribute, like you were saying before. Um, in places, mainly in Europe, there are active war crimes in, uh, units within police prosecution services and prosecution services. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing that in France, in Germany, where um, there are, and in Netherlands, for example, even in Sweden, there are cases. Um, and we're seeing that in respect of Syrian um, crimes in Syria, and obviously that's because there is no other opportunity. Uh, for accountability in Syria, there's no avenue mm. through. The so there's a trial government. going on in Germany, or that's recently right. of yeah, um, uh, related yeah. to Syrian. Exactly, that was in respect state of state-sponsored torture. Exactly, mm. um, and similarly in France and in Netherlands, I think uh, yesterday there was a case relevant to uh, I think um, one of the uh, uh, non-state armed groups. Um, so. ISIS and any of those kinds of groups that were involved in Syria. So there Mm -hmm. is all of that opportunity. And I think we say that here in respect of Australia, for example, um, one of the things that we did that wasn't necessarily universal jurisdiction, but obviously relevant was the, um, you know, the introduction of legislation to strip uh, citizenship from dual nationals of persons that were fighting with terrorist organisations, either ISIS or other Islamist groups in Syria and that were, you know, having their citizenship stripped. And one of the things that we did was uh, make submissions about the fact that, you know, you should be actually investigating these individuals as an obligation that you have um, under international law, but also Mm. a moral obligation and a responsibility, Mm. rather than leaving these people who were really really a product of Mm. Australia's system and, you know, were... um, 
not picked up when you know they decided to go up and, and commit crimes, um, serious mm. atrocities against minorities uh, in Syria and Iraq. Um, that you should investigate them. You should liaise with mechanisms in, for example, in Iraq where they are collecting evidence. And I understand that that's being done now finally by the AFP. Okay. Um, uh, so that we did hear some instances of, invest- of AFP investigators actually going and uh, interviewing Yazidi survivors of sexual violence um, in respect of some investigations that are going on for returned foreign fighters. Obviously, that's where the dual citizenship is not an issue, but, I mean, we took that dual citizenship opportunity as a point to make about the fact that Australia is really... We can hold these people accountable instead of trying to... Exactly, which is what we're seeing in Europe. I mean, the Netherlands was just that one example where they are um, holding trials into into, uh, persons that were implicated in international crimes in Syria and Mm -hmm. Iraq. Dutch citizens? Um, I think Dutch citizens, yeah, as well. So, yeah, so Australia's yeah. at this nascent stage of That's tackling right. atrocity crimes in a domestic forum. Mm. Um, what can Australia learn from some of these other jurisdictions in Europe, like Netherlands, Germany, yeah. France? I think the number one thing to learn is the fact that these, all these jurisdictions have specialist war crimes units. Okay. They're called war crimes units, but they do international crimes. It's not just relevant to war crimes. They, they look into crimes against humanity and genocide and... Um, sometimes they're grouped into, you know, uh, terrorism and all of those other things as well that kind of can be grouped into international crimes. Um, so, you know, that's the the, mo- the number one thing. I that's think the model. That's the and model. you've called for this permanent yeah, and international we're, we're crimes f- investigation unit. Absolutely. And, and you'd see that, would you, that be a part of the AFP? Well, you know, I think when Australia did have one before um, and that specialist investigations unit was set up in the late 80s to... At the time, there was a lot of media um, interest and stories about the fact that Nazi war criminals were um, just having a good time in Australia. They sought haven Mm. um, after the end of the Second World War and nothing was really done about them. So in many countries, Canada was one of them, Australia was one of them, they they sought to do something about this. So they Mm -hmm. established the Specialist Investigations Unit. Um, and um, with a view to then those persons facing an international tribunal, uh, no, or? to facing uh, trials here in Australia. So okay. the Geneva Conventions Act was the relevant where the uh, war crimes offences. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you, I've, I think the statistics from that um, that kind of experience there with the Specialist Investigations Unit was, I think that there was at least eight hundred incidents that were investigated. Um, there was only four people that were brought to trial. Polyokovic was one of those. Mm, mm, so mm. that was, I mean, that was a different case, but it was um, that was one of the a result of that kind of specialist investigations unit. And one okay. of the interesting things is that um, the CDPP at the time was Mark uh, Weinberg, who's now the office the the special investigator for the newly established office of the special investigator that will look into um, the Brereton inquiry and other crimes that occurred by Australian that were perpetrated by Australian special forces in Afghanistan. So one of the things um, that Australia really needs is a specialist investigations unit or a, a war crimes unit of some sort, whether the the specialist investigations unit we had in the late eighties and nineties, which was disbanded by Paul Keating, um, was under the Attorney General's department at the time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, you know, where the the where it sits in the where apparatus it sits is now, perhaps not as important. Yeah, well, I, th- I mean, ideally, it would be great to have it in the Attorney General's department. There is some kind of 
um, you would hope, room of um, that independence from the Department of Home Affairs, which is where the AFP sits now. Uh-huh. Um, but of course, you know, I think the most appropriate place for it is within the AFP because the AFP does have um, uh, the remit to invest. It's got the mandate to investigate these are Commonwealth offences, so yes. they should be doing their job. But are they doing their job is what we're saying they haven't been doing. And even in respect of the Afghanistan war crimes, they haven't, they weren't doing a good job. And and I think that was because Australia didn't have a specialist war crimes unit. Yeah, There were referrals at the time before the Brereton Inquiry that um, were going up to the AFP, I believe. Um, and the AFP, I think, was not investigating those, those properly. And mm. obviously, I think... Um, that's a real shame because mm. we wouldn't have had so many years lagging between an accountability process. But, you know, here we are now and we have to, I think, keep pushing and maintaining the independence of the Office of the Special Investigator. Yeah. So, you know, yes, I think the answer to that is that they need to learn from other jurisdictions and um, a specialist investigations unit is definitely one of those. Otherwise, we as lawyers are just sending... Um, cases for investigation that will just sit there on the desk of somebody and collect dust for years and that's that's not right which is what was happening before um i can talk about the two incidents well-known incidents um of attempts by lawyers to bring cases under the principle of universal jurisdiction yeah okay before you do that if jim were here he would remind (laughs) us to tell our listeners that the afp is the australian federal Mm. police and the cdpp is the commonwealth director of public prosecutions (laughs) who um has state equivalents but when we're talking about um crimes being potentially prosecuted under the commonwealth criminal code more commonly that would be done by the commonwealth director of public prosecutions that's right yeah yeah. Okay. So tell us about these these so two the cases. Two, well, and they were publicised. They were public. Um, the first, um, I'll talk about the first. I guess public one was when the uh, uh, Sri Lankan president was visiting in two thousand and eleven. At the time, um, Rajapaksa was visiting as a part of the Chogham. The okay. I don't know what the equivalent is for that, um, Nick, but it's the Tim. So is it Nick or Jim? Jim. Jim. It's the um, Commonwealth Heads of Government. I think that's what it is. I think that's. I think that's so right. So there was a meeting yeah. um, in Perth. The, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, isn't there you it? Go. Yeah, Chogham. I think that's where the end comes from. Yeah. So uh, you know, President Rajapaksa was visiting at the time, and um, a uh, Tamil survivor of crimes and a witness. He uh, very bravely and courageously brought a case uh, against him for war crimes and crimes against humanity in respect of the very recent uh, atrocity crimes that were being perpetrated by the Sri Lankan state authorities against uh, mainly Tamil civilians um, in um, in Sri Lanka. And, um, you know, that was kind of public. The The idea was to, and I understand the use of the law to bring attention to your cause and your case, and I understand that. But I think in respect of that case, it was ultimately going to fail because uh, Mahinda Rajapaksa at the time was a current head of state mm-hmm. and there are international, uh, public international rules on head of state immunity and that obviously applied. So that kind of went nowhere, but the idea was to kind of bring attention to the serious crimes that were being perpetrated, that were perpetrated. Um, against Tamil civilians in, in Sri Lanka. So that was one case, and mm. they sought the... And I should talk about this, that these crimes um, require the Attorney General's consent, like many other national security, all those kinds of crimes. Um, so they did... I think that um, 
there was uh, an action pursued in one of the magistrates' courts in Melbourne, um, but of course they also sent a concurrent request to the Attorney General at the time, it was Robert McClelland, who, who said no because of the head of state immunity, immunity. which was obviously expected, like I said. Yes. So that was the first case that was public. The second case that was public was most recently in 2018 in um, April when uh, Aung San Suu Kyi was visiting Australia for another Asia, ASEAN meeting, I think it mm-hmm. was, or mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. sort of Asia-Pacific meeting, um, and lawyers uh, brought some brought a case to seek to have her arrested um, for crimes against humanity and genocide. I, th- I don't remember what charges they listed, but it was crimes against the Rohingya population, yes. obviously. Um, it had been so recent since the most um, recent kind of uh, attacks against Rohingya villages, which obviously resulted in the genocide against the Rohingya people. Um, but that was also bound to fail because um, Aung San Suu Kyi was also a current foreign minister, and there are obviously precedents in the International Court of Justice, a famous case um, relevant to a Belgian um, and Congolese uh, case relevant to an attorney general mm-hmm. um, that uh, where they stated that current serving ministers of such kind of roles would attract immunity from suit. Yes. So I knew that, and I was actually in Berlin at the time when that case was brought, and I was so worried about, about the impact of this and whether or not, you know, it might um, impact on, you know, conservative governance bringing changes to the law, which happened in the UK, um, unfortunately, uh, you know, where um, I was worried about the fact that this might actually impact on ability of, you know, people like you and me bringing about cases uh, in the UK. Changes were, you know, kind of dramatic and brought about really detrimental impacts on the law where it said you needed the consent first of the prosecutor, I think, before you brought mm-hmm. about that. So it brought in more kind of layers to prevent, you know, ordinary people from bringing um, cases to to under the principle of a private prosecution, for example, mm. and then requesting the uh, consent of the Attorney General. So obviously that case went nowhere. Attorney General then it was Christian Porter. He uh, stated that um, she has she's a foreign incumbent foreign minister. And I, I must state it's not some, it's not that I agree with these principles, but I think you have to pick your battles and strategically about which cases to pursue. Um, and ultimately that case went to the High Court, um, which was I think a really bad strategy. And and I wish that the lawyers would have stopped. But, you know, you can't tell people what to do and I think they have their own um, reasons for why they pursued the case. Um, obviously, if, if it was me, I, would, I wouldn't have done the case at all. Mm. I think there's other ways that you can try and, and pursue persons like that who are in our jurisdiction and who have credible allegations against them. Um, you can probably, you know, uh, go after the fact that they were provided with a visa in the first place. You know, mm. why was it that they were allowed to visit? But given that I guess public international rules are so set in that yes. regard. There's probably no point in bringing those cases. It's futile. It's futile. But I, but I also recognise that, you know, the mark of a radical lawyer recognises that, you know, you you shouldn't always regard futile attempts as something that you shouldn't pursue. Sometimes um, it's a long game. Isn't exactly. It? Yeah. Thankfully, mm. I mean, I think um, I was very concerned about the fact that 
um, in that case. And I, I, unfortunately, it's been so long since I've looked at that case. But one of the worrying things I had about that case was the right of um, people to bring about private prosecutions. So that's the idea that anybody can bring about um, a, pr- a prosecution and it would be carried on, obviously, by the relevant prosecuting authority. Mm. So that's a principle in our domestic mm. law. It's available in state and federal um, statute. Um, but in that case, unfortunately, the High Court decided that in those in those instances uh, where the Attorney General's re- consent is required, is required, that private citizens cannot bring such cases. So it, it left that strategic... So it, in a way, I think, you know, I was really disappointed after that case because I think the High Court chose wrong. There's so much that you can write about this case in terms of the strategy, but it also in terms of um, principles of open justice and the fact that, um, you know, it was a ex-temp decision that was made by the High Court, but then one of the judges, I've forgotten his honour's name, I'll have to get it in a minute, he changed his mind after writing his reasons. So, you know, there's also the question there about the fact that, you know, had you actually, as a judge, taken your time to look through the issues properly, um, whether or not you would have changed your mind, that was just, I guess, a slight there. But, um, um, you know, I think one of the things is, I guess I was disappointed after that case, but I think it just meant that this is how universal jurisdiction works. In U- European jurisdictions, there is no such thing as private prosecutions. Like, what is this thing? You know, this is how it should work. Police are meant to be doing their job. They're meant to be investigating. They're meant to be referring to this, the CDPP, the prosecutors. And the prosecutor would go to the Attorney General and say, we have a case that we want to pursue. Can yes. you give your consent? We think and it's if, got reasonable prospects of success. Exactly. We should. There's a public interest in bringing this prosecution exactly. and give your consent. It meets all of the guidelines. It meets the criteria for the crimes, etc. And And the Attorney General at the time should look at it independently and make the case based on the assessment made by the prosecutor, right? Mm. Which is how... the system should work in practice. So that's Mm. what we would like to get to. We would like to get to that system. And I think the case is... And presumably an individual under that framework could bring a complaint to a policing authority, even present evidence of their... Which is what, you know, ACIJ can do, and other people as well, I think. Indeed. Um, And, you know, I think the idea is that um, we don't think we want to inundate the police with just doing random cases. And I think... That's why the strategy of the ACIJ is to bring back cases at least where there's reasonable prospects, but also an Australian link so that you can actually incentivize police to want to do the work. Mm. Um, you know, so that I think there are a lot of Australian links. I mean, obviously, in respect of what's happening in Australian Special Forces war crimes, that's a direct responsibility of Australia to undertake an accountability mechanism. Um, but in respect of universal jurisdiction more broadly, where it doesn't involve uh, Australians in that way, um, there is still an, an obligation, but where there is a link, I think you can try and incentivize authorities to want to do something about that. And you'd be surprised about the links that... I mean, we are a very globalised world and mm. people travel. And mm. um, not just that, there are links in some other ways. There's a lot of dual nationals um, mm. that are, uh, you know, present in conflicts abroad where there are crimes against humanity and war crimes and genocide being perpetrated. Or refugees here now. Or refugees, definitely survivor communities in Australia. I mean, there is a lot of evidence um, that they have. And, I mean, I think, you know, the most um, 
the most recent one that we can think of is the um, the Yazidi community that's here in Australia. I mean, they would have a lot of evidence that they should be providing to the AFP. There was, you know, a random statement, probably the only good statement that we can get from uh, Peter Dutton, where he really did seem interested in, in pursuing justice for Yazidi survivors and was uh, thinking about whether or not AFP could provide some sort of um, mechanism for them to provide witness testimony, but nothing unfortunately went with that, although we don't know what's happening behind the scenes. So, sure. much, yeah. so can we move on then to talk about an international legal forum and some recent developments there mm-hmm. in the International Criminal Court? In a recent episode of The Wigs, it was episode 11 of this season two, we looked at this decision of um, the pre-trial chamber in the International Criminal Court, which ruled that it had jurisdiction over alleged offences in the occupied Palestinian territories, the West Bank mm-hmm. and Gaza. Does this decision change the landscape for accountability for perpetrators of serious crimes in a significant way, or how does it mm-hmm. um, fit in the, the history of um, the possibility of holding people to account? I think so, particularly because... Uh, Unfortunately, there are so many double standards in international justice where powerful Western states uh, think that they are outside of the bounds of accountability. And in this example, and obviously the uh, International Criminal Court is also investigating the situation in Afghanistan. Um, So I think, you know, Western states now realise that they are also individual perpetrators, obviously, because international criminal law is about individual criminal liability not state responsibility. So I think, you know, there's this idea that this is the this is really the international justice uh, uh, standard that we should be um, that the that we should be uh, trying to get to, right? So um, perpetrators of Western states are now at the cusp of being held accountable, that mm-hmm. they, they shouldn't be able to enjoy the immunity, uh, the impunity rather, that um, that they enjoyed for so long Mm -hmm. so you know in respect of the situation in Afghanistan at the ICC there's the real potential that I mean there have been victims representations in respect of um, Guantanamo Bay detainees against Mm -hmm. CIA uh, officials that were uh, that are responsible for the CIA's black sites and torture program so that's a real threat there which is why the US is so against the International Criminal Court um, exercising its jurisdiction in Afghanistan and obviously in Palestine because of its good friend and ally, Israel. Yes. Um, And last year there was so many... There was unprecedented political um, interference in the court. Um, The US Trump administration imposed really serious punitive measures that should... You know, sanctions, we're talking about sanctions, that are normally reserved for war criminals and Mm. uh, people associated with large organised crime, but they were being used against civil servants in the international space. What kind of measures? Uh, It was financial sanctions, asset freezes, uh, against the now outgoing uh, prosecutor of the International Criminal Court, Fatua Bensouda, today's her last day, um, and two of her senior uh, staff at the Office of the Prosecutor. So that was... For at least a year, I think, that those um, impositions were. And there was also, just before that, there was travel bans. So um, Fatou Bensouda, for example, there was, at one point, she wasn't allowed to... She was prevented entry from um, the US to 
brief the UN Security Council. So those were the kinds of measures that the US Trump administration imposed at the time. Um, and that's, again, back to that point about the fact that there were, there is double standards in international criminal justice, and that's one of the things that lawyers working in this space try and want to dismantle. Mm. And the case of Palestine, obviously, is one of those examples where impunity has um, rendered impossible ability of Palestinians to seek any kind of accountability and justice for the serious international crimes that are being manifested and have been for decades. Mm. Um, and, you know, it has allowed Israel to continue um, perpetrating crimes daily against the Palestinian people. So this is definitely one avenue mm. for accountability. I think, you know, it's interesting because the Palestinian movement struggle as a whole, I think there's a recognition that the law, international law, is not going to save us, although it's definitely on the, palace, the side of the Palestinian people. Um, but it is, I do subscribe to the idea that, you know, using the law, the law is a tool for you to advocate mm. for ultimate liberation and justice and accountability. And so mm. there's the important thing to note that victims' communities really do want um, and are striving for justice. So, you know, that's. That's really important. Mm. But of course, international criminal justice and the ICC is facing constraints on its work, um, not just obviously the political, which we recognize, uh, which we just discussed, um, but also resources and ability to be able to actually um, undertake its mandate fairly. I mean, now they've just opened up a, well, they're seeking, the prosecutor is seeking authorization into opening an investigation into the uh, uh, war on drugs killings in the Philippines um, when Duterte came to power since yes. 2016, which many people have, many analysts have said, do meet the the, the, the criteria, the criteria the of a crime against mm. of the crimes against humanity of murder. Um, it's said that at least 6,000 people were killed since 2016 mm. in the Philippines. So that's really great for our friends in the Philippines, of course, but of when you think about the situations that are currently being investigated at the court, you have Palestine, which is a huge one, Afghanistan, which is totally huge as well, but also now Philippines and, of course, a number of other situations. Um, I think states really have to uh, think about how they're going to make sure that um, the accountability processes at the ICC are maintained. They need to, go, they need to think about funding the court, Cooperation is a huge one, of course. Um, so there's all these kinds of mm. limitations and constraints that we have to think about. And I think, um, you how, know... How would you describe Australia's relationship to the International um, Criminal Court? It's a... I think Australia is one of the first members of the International Criminal Court. It signed up very early as, a, as an initial signatory. It supports it in principle. It provides its... Um, uh, it's, you know, dues on time and it you know, states that it supports the the work of the International Criminal Court. But it was difficult last year for us to see statements in support of the court and the ind independence of the court against attacks from the US by the Australian government. Mm. They did sign on to statements, but it was kind of late that they did so. There was no real um, public, you know, facing statements of support to the court, which is very uh, disappointing, I think. And... That's something that we have to work on. But in respect of Palestine, of course, Australia was totally um, 
totally opposed to jurisdiction being found yeah in palestine which is Mm. totally shameful and inconsistent with its supposed support for international criminal justice yes i mean it seems to reveal a lack of appetite for holding perpetrators of serious crimes to account and it's such a and it's a display of that double standards that i was talking Mm. about because uh what was really interesting um was I was at the first, so every year the International Criminal Court holds a Assembly of States parties, mm-hmm. uh, which is obviously is a treaty to the Rome Statute. There, similar conventions have uh, that kind of um, convergence or meeting of states parties representatives that talk about the issues of the court and all of those sorts of things. And obviously, civil society. Are represented and they hold side meetings and they try and push uh, on on agendas and things like that. So um, you know, Australia presents a statement at the Assembly of States parties, and I was there in December of 2019, early December, and Australia presented this great statement. You know, all these um, uh, you know great principles about the need for justice and accountability, especially uh, for peace. You know, you cannot have uh, peace without justice mm-hmm. but 20 days later so the end of December when we understood that Pal- uh, that Australia was going to intervene and put in, in the Palestinian a, jurisdiction in the Palestinian decision. yes yeah, um, the statement from DFAT was uh, you know the typical Australian line we don't think that negotiations should be um, prejud- prejudged by this you know uh, all of the, that typical thing that you would expect so obviously it was Palestinians, um, you can't get justice, but everyone else, it's okay, you can get justice. Mm. And I think that's really shameful in, in terms of, you know, Australia's trying to reckon with its own um, crimes in Afghanistan and it's not, and it's not uh, trying to, you know, provide that kind of avenue, the only avenue available to Palestinians, I might add. There's no other avenue. So there's no accountability in the Israeli court system. It's totally shut. Um, there's the appearance of it, of course, but it's not. It's not. Um, it's not genuine. It's not real. It's not real. Um, and the International Criminal Court is the only way. So, is there a crime of apartheid that's recognised um, in international criminal law or domestically through this prism of universal jurisdiction? That's right. There is a crime of apartheid. It's a, a crime against humanity. And obviously we understand apartheid to mean, well, the popular understanding, of course, is the way it was practiced in South Africa. Yes. But the international community in the 70s and again in, in uh, 2002, they recognized the fact that it is a crime against humanity and uh, and uh, defined it as a crime against humanity in two conventions, the Convention Against the Crime of Apartheid, but also again in the Rome Statute in 1998, which gave birth to the International Criminal Court. Um, so the crime against humanity of apartheid is recognized as a crime independent of what it was in South Africa yes. by the international community. But it's this systematic policies, practices of racial segregation, discrimination, that's the essence of it, isn't it? That's right. So it consists of three primary primary elements. Um, it's an intent to maintain the domination by one group over mm-hmm. another in a context of systematic oppression by one group over another, um, and it consists of inhumane act or acts. And crime against humanity of apartheid, as I said, is also codified in the Australian criminal law. It's a crime against the Commonwealth and the people of Australia, mm. um, for which individuals can be held um, accountable where they are alleged to be involved in 
perpetrating acts of crimes against humanity of apartheid. The interesting thing, and, and one of the things that the Human Rights Watch report obviously found, and I must state that uh, Palestinian scholars, activists, and human rights organizations have been um, describing what is occurring in Palestine as meeting the crime against humanity of apartheid for a long time. Mm. And now we see international organizations such as Human Rights Watch, human rights Watch most recently um, in a really landmark report making that determination Employing that well. language as well. Mm. Employing that language. So we are seeing a dramatic shift and Israeli human rights organizations also in January came out with a report. Um, but the interesting thing is that it's never been... Um, there's never been any trials for yes. somebody perpetrating anywhere, anywhere. And so, presumably, it's the type of crime that is very difficult for an individual person to commit. I mean, the crime of crime against humanity or war crime mm-hmm. of murder, an individual can yeah. commit that crime. Given the sort of systematic nature of yeah. a crime of apartheid, it's presumably got to involve some structure, some mm. structures of power I think you'd have to society. look at the, the policy uh, implementation mm. and, and, uh, um, and that's what the Human Rights Watch report does. Mm. It really looks into... Uh, and things like controlling water exactly. supplies, controlling exactly. access to schools and roads and, yeah. so and then also more violent actions. Mm. Um, and one of the interesting things about whether or not, and obviously Palestinian victims groups and their lawyers have uh, presented communications to the ICC, mm. Office of the Prosecutor, about the crime of apartheid in addition to war crimes that have been perpetrated in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza Strip, um, is that um, this... One of the really amazing Palestinian lawyers um, is Nora Arakat, who's an academic as well, and, and she looks at law more broadly and how it operates in, the, the, uh, operates in a political space, right? And one of the interesting things that she and others are remarking is about how and whether or not um, the, the prosecution of apartheid uh, and whether or not it will be employed at the International Criminal Court and how it is... Um, uh, it is going to be a real question for international criminal justice mm. as a whole because that um, that is really what we're seeing in Palestine in addition to war crimes that have been perpetrated for many decades. Um, one of the interesting things will be to see whether or not apartheid will be prosecuted at the ICC against Israeli officials yes. um, and authorities who have implemented policies that amount to apartheid. Mm. Yeah, so it's going to be... I mean, I think for people watching the international criminal justice space are going to be really fascinated by what happens at the ICC in relation to Palestine. Um, I I mean, I think one of the things that we're doing here in Australia is trying to educate the public about the fact that um, the crime of apartheid is an international crime. It's a crime against humanity. That's also a crime in our legal books um, because, unfortunately, now there's so much... Uh, miseducation and misinformation rather about the crime and whether it is being perpetrated in Palestine by Israeli authorities or not and obviously you have um, uh, unfortunate uh, you know misinformation from Israeli lobby groups who are trying to um, misuse the term and and try and and state that it's not happening that it's you know in a context relevant to South Africa only or something mm. like that so that's part of what we're trying to do here in respect of the crime of apartheid because it is a serious crime against humanity mm. Mm. 
So let's move then to the the recent report by the Assistant Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, Major General Paul Brereton, mm. who um, is also a Justice of the Court of Appeal here in the New South Wales Supreme Court. You've mentioned um, a few times this, but just to position our listeners for this topic, mm. this was the inquiry that was directed to whether there was any substance to rumours of criminal or unlawful conduct by or concerning Australian Defence Force Special Operations Task Group deployments in Afghanistan during the period 2005 to 2016. And the inquiry arose because in March 2016, the Chief of the Army wrote to the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force, which is like an oversight body and and auditing type um, body, and requesting that the Inspector General of the Australian Defence Force inquire into serious concerns re- regarding those Special Operations Command uh, soldiers, which were summarised as, quote, unsubstantiated stories, end quote, of possible crimes including illegal killings, inhumane and unlawful treatment of detainees over a lengthy period of time in Afghanistan, the cultural normalisation of deviance from professional standards, including intentional inaccuracy of operational reporting related to possible crimes, a culture of silence within the Special Operations Command, Mm -hmm. the deliberate undermining isolation and removal from Special Operations Command units of some individuals who tried to bring accountability or address Mm -hmm. this rumoured conduct and culture and a systemic failure including commanders and legal officers Mm -hmm. um, at multiple levels within that Special Operations Command to report or investigate these allegations. And so the the short answer to the inquiry um, is, as Major General Brereton wrote in his report, the short and sad answer to the question is yes, Mm -hmm. there is substance to the rumours of war crimes by elements of the Special Operations Task Group. And he went on to say, because of the nature of this inquiry, which is not a criminal trial, it cannot and does not find guilt in any individual case Mm -hmm. and in conformity with legal principle, the practices of commissions of inquiry uh, and so on, its findings in any individual case are limited to whether there is credible information of breaches of the law of armed conflict or war Mm -hmm. crimes. And just so that we can... um, really frame the scale of the findings. Mm -hmm. Among them were that there was credible information of 23 incidents in which one or more non-combatants were unlawfully killed by or at the direction of ADF soldiers, Mm -hmm. which could be accepted by a jury as the war crime of murder, and a further two incidents in which a non-combatant was mistreated, which could be accepted by a jury as the war crime of cruel treatment. And we're talking here about these incidents that ultimately involved in the death of 39 human beings and a further two human beings mistreated at the hands of um, Australian Defence Force soldiers, it seems, Mm -hmm. Um, and a total of 25 current or former ADF personnel who were... Perpetrators. ..considered to be perpetrators, either as principals or accessories in that... Um, way that the criminal law understands that someone who doesn't do a direct action may mm-hmm. still have some liability in respect of um, their involvement mm-hmm. 
some on a single occasion and a few on multiple occasions. Multiple, yeah. mm. So we've had this inquiry. It's taken a long time. There's been a somewhat, it seems, um, parallel process being undertaken by the Australian Federal Police mm-hmm. concerning some of these matters That's or right. at least allegations emerging from Australian involvement in Afghanistan. But the question of the guilt of any individual for any war crime remains outstanding. That's is that right? right? And That's no one has yet been charged with any offence. Assuming that someone might be charged, mm-hmm. which court or courts could have jurisdiction to hear the prosecution of a crime connected with the allegations against mm-hmm. Australian Defence Force soldiers for their conduct in Afghanistan? My understanding is that it's, there's a special uh, procedure, and you might actually know more about it, Felicity, where it's a federal crime involved. It can... Um, the trial can proceed at a state supreme court um, and that would need the, uh, I guess, the signing off of the, with a relevant certificate from the federal justice minister. Mm. Um, but regardless of where the court takes place, mm. um, the prosecution is of federal crimes. Mm. Um, so perhaps I, even in the federal court. Perhaps, it yeah. It could be prosecuted yeah. and if we're talking about recent. a domestic yeah. court. And I think that's recent that trials are now... Um, uh, being undertaken in federal mm. court where there are federal crimes, mm. but certainly that doesn't preclude state supreme courts mm. not acting under state legislation, of course, but um, prosecuting federal crimes. Mm. So there is that ability in the law. Um, so we're talking about those crimes that are now codified in the Commonwealth exactly. Criminal Code it will be since all... 2002 yep. that have. Um, made it a crime against the Commonwealth mm-hmm. and the people of Australia. Yep. So not employing universal jurisdiction well, directly, but yeah, or so even engaging that, really? Well, look, you could say it or, is. Or is it a way of implementing universal it's jurisdiction? It's a way of implementing mm. because Division 268 crimes, which implements the Rome Statute crimes in our criminal code, uh, they, are, um, they are given the broadest universal the broadest geographic extraterritorial uh, application, right. which is 15, Section 15D, I think, of the Commonwealth Criminal uh, Code. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. the only thing really to point out there. Sure. Okay. So could what about foreign domestic courts, given the nature of the crimes alleged, yeah. that they're war crimes, um, could a foreign domestic court take this on mm-hmm. using that principle of universal jurisdiction? Definitely, if they have the jurisdiction to, but I think given that there is a process in Australia, it would just, happening. it would be, I think, too cumbersome or mm. maybe a, a court there wouldn't want to take it on. But of course, there's always a spectre of the ICC. So if Australia doesn't engage in or is unable or unwilling, um, then that's where the ICC can step in. And we know that because the uh, Afghanistan situation is an open investigation of the ICC. So there is always... The idea that if Australia fails, then we could possibly be seeing Australians being investigated at the ICC. Um, And that's something that we have been pushing since day one on this issue, is to make sure that um, the ability of the ICC, that if Australia fails really to undertake proper investigations and prosecutions, then there's always the prospect of the ICC. And this was recognised, obviously, in the Brereton report, the ICC kind of, the threat of the ICC is throughout. Mm. I mean, of course, I would disagree with this. The Brereton report indicates, oh, that we've got a a great system. It shouldn't be 
you know, the ICC won't need to step in, but of course you're not the judge of that. It will be, it'll be according to obviously proper criteria being mm. established whether or not. And some of the interesting things that I think us and academics definitely and, and observers abroad are going to be looking at is how um, Australia, un, you know, I mean the prosecutors and the investigators look at the issue of, for example, um, command and superior responsibility, so mm. whether or not um, the chain of command will be investigated, mm. how much they knew about what was being happening, whether they uh, didn't undertake investigation. So that's going to be really interesting. Of course, the Breton report itself kind of absolved chain of command. Um, they, they said that they held moral responsibility, but not legal responsibility. But I think that that's still an open question and definitely one that I think that us and others will be pushing the office of the special investigator to ensure that they do investigate all the way up and because i think it was i mean for all intents and purposes everyone is saying that it what what was happening was common knowledge across mm. the entire defense force so this office of the special investigator that's a special uh, that's a new creature that mm. the morrison government established in light of this Brereton report that's right um, Which we, to... took, we took some credit for, the ACIJ did. <laughs> oh, good. Tell us more. Well, you know, it's it's a part of what we've been saying for a long time, which is a specialist investigations unit. And I should add, you know, the ACIJ is not the first. Um, we've had all of the previous really wonderful Australians who were investigators at the specialist investigations unit that we had in the 80s that went on to become prosecutors at the ICTY and, and ICTR and have a really great so reputation. So that's the former Yugoslavia and the Rwanda conflict. That's right, yes, thanks, Jim. And um, <laughs> uh, many of the, inter- the, the investigators that formed part of that specialist investigations unit in the 80s and 90s have been speaking out about for a long time um, about the need for Australia to have a specialist investigations unit. They include... Wonderful people like Graham Blewett, John uh, Ralston and Bob Reed that form part of the unit. And of course others like Professor Tim McCormack and Justice Mike Irace. Um, Justice Mike Irace obviously was a prosecutor at the ICTY and was very involved in uh, trying to push for policy change obviously before he got to the bench. The point is that those investigators, people like now Supreme Court um, Judge uh, Mark Race, all of those were talking about the need for Australia mm. to set up such a unit. And mm-hmm. I think even the Red Cross here in Australia was calling for such a unit. So we're definitely not the first ones. I think we recognise that we're just the civil society pushing that, mm. you know, we need that. And definitely it is a welcome um, step. I mean, where they've been, it's been less than six months that they've been around. They, mm. they set up shop on um, January 4th, I think. They're still recruiting. We'll see how they go. It's going to be a long process, It's going to be a long process. I mean, I think some of the estimates of time is that it could take between five to ten years. Mm. Um, There's other things that we're going to be watching for. It's uh, one of the limitations of the Brereton Report is that it only looked at incidents that were um, clear-cut, you know, cases of what you could say are serious violations of international humanitarian law. Murder when a person is detained. You know, that's definitely a clear-cut violation and a, a... a war crime um, but one of the things we're interested in is the other incidents that the Bertram report didn't investigate which were seen as like fog of war which is a real phrase that I don't like and it's relevant to this idea that um, um, persons such as um, were fleeing from special forces at the time 
um, were they directly participating in hostilities? It's all of that kind of... Uh, the greyer cases. The, well, that's... I mean, yes, you can you can say it in that way, but that's where a lot of... Um, that's where a lot of Afghans were being killed by yes. Western forces. And I think if they're investigated properly, you might really be able to find incidents where there have been unlawful killings. Yes, and discern that they were truly non-combatants. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, and children were killed in those instances too. Yes. Some of them were in um, media reports that we've just seen in the last couple of years or so. I mean, obviously, the media has been really fantastic um, in respect of this, including um, special forces themselves who you know spoke out um, to several inquiries, the one just before the Bird Inquiry, which was being undertaken by... Um, anthropologist uh, Samantha Crump votes. Um, but also I, I should state that Afghan victims themselves and their families continued to make reports to mm. the Australian Defence Force at the time. They would um, complain to the Australian Human Rights, excuse me, the Afghan Human Rights, Independent Human Rights Commission. Mm. But also there are instances where they went, um, you know, in Uruzgan, they would go to you know, with their village chiefs or wherever, there have been reports where they went and complained to Australian yeah. authorities. So that is an interesting one to me because it shows that how were you as a superior commander not aware when you have Afghans complaining about the fact that their family member was being killed or mistreated. Yeah. So we've just suddenly and recently mm. closed our embassy in Kabul in mm. Afghanistan. Is that going to have an impact on the ability to investigate these allegations, collect evidence, yeah, speak think, to witnesses? Yeah, I mean, I think you can definitely say that there will be an impact um, in terms of how uh, investigators, Australian investigators, able to logistically um, travel to the country and be able to investigate. But I think the broader question really is about the situation in Afghanistan more broadly. Um, now that Western forces are pulling out, uh, I think I saw a video this morning being tweeted by Mark Willisey, a, journal a journalist at the ABC, where it showed one town in Uruzgan province, which is the main province where Australian special forces were present and where most of the war crimes uh, occurred. Uh, one of the towns is now being was under, you know, was taken over by the Taliban. Mm. So I think that's going to be a really, really troubling. Mm. Um, prospect for investigators so i don't know the instability worried. and displacement yeah. and but i don't think it should mm. it should stop them i think one of the things to note and we've discussed it before about the challenges of investigating war crimes is that you might not able to be get to the you might not able to travel to the crime scene or you know evidence was so long after the actual mm. incident took place but there are ways that you can come around that and i think that's something that investigators and lawyers are really grappling with and coming to terms mm. with over abroad and trying to find ways. I mean, mm. obviously... And certainly domestically. I mean, we see criminal prosecutions in our state courts that involve alleged crimes mm. from decades ago, mm. particularly in the context of sexual type that's offending, right. um, where someone might not make a complaint yeah. until many, many years after the fact. Yeah. Um, so delay is certainly not an unknown mm. factor in our own domestic That's a great point. criminal yeah. prosecution landscape. Yeah, and it shouldn't be an excuse. I mean, mm. I think at least... I mean, sometimes it can be... Mm. It can lead to a dead end, I guess. That's right. Um, but 
Sure. But sure, undertake thorough, genuine investigation and mm. then make the determination. Mm. Um, so one of the other things is how will Afghan victims and their families be able to participate in the process? Mm. So that's something that we're interested in pursuing mm-hmm. and we're talking to partners in Afghanistan about that at the moment. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, what we know is that at least in the defamation trial that's uh, ongoing presently, that Afghan victims will be able to give testimony um, in that regard. So obviously we expect that that will happen in a criminal process, as mm. is as is necessary. Mm. Um, but we don't know what the Office of the Special Investigator has in respect of um, providing avenues for victim liaison or anything of that kind. So that's something that we're looking at pursuing some advocacy around as well. Mm. There's a lot. There's a lot of threads to chase as a result. Um, sometimes it can seem really overwhelming. One of the things I worry about is the political machinations around. Um, you know, just sometimes I think one of the things is I think Australian population more broadly are very aghast at what was happening and being done in their name. Mm. You know, being an apologist for the crimes that that occurred, but we have to recognise that accountability is essential not just for the victims of course and their families and Afghanistan as a whole but also to us as a as a people it's a blight on our name mm. collectively mm. and there should be accountability mm. for that and I think it's um that's one of the things that you know we all have to grapple with and atone for and accountability is is one of that but also the the specter of truth the importance of truth um uh, as a necessary part of the healing process. And it's just one of the things why the ACIJ and a few, or few many organisations in Australia and abroad um, who work in this space called for the eventual full release of the Brereton Inquiry. Yes, it's very heavily redacted. Extremely. Like the Buchan um, who was doing early <laughs> research for me opened it up and then it's just which, black everywhere. Yeah, which which makes mm. sense, obviously. Of they course. don't want to prejudice. Indeed. Um, there, are, there are legitimate reasons. Legitimate reasons. For and we recognize a process that. to occur in a certain way. Um, but one of the good things is that in his, uh, in his report, Justice Brereton did state that it is open to him to make a determination to release the the full report at some at point, some point mm. which we hope and I think we should all um, we should all advocate for that mm. whenever that is because obviously accountability can come through other mechanisms exactly. other than a criminal justice exactly. process and yeah. reforms changes to systems changes mm. to the way that leadership operates right. uh, those things can happen. Mm-hmm irrespective of whether a conviction occurs in circumstances where an inquiry for a different purpose, according to a different standard of proof, Mm -hmm. has made these findings of credible... Yeah, um, that's right. ..credible wrongdoing. That's right. Credible... So, you know, I think uh, we'll have to see in the next five years what happens and how long this will go for. Well, I hope it's not five years before we have you back on the wheels, Rowan. Let's finish off. Um, You've had, obviously, to date, um, a really fascinating career and different um, experience studying Mm. and working as a lawyer. For someone who's interested in a career in global justice or whether they're a law student, lawyer, non-lawyer, someone who's interested in these global justice issues, Mm. how can they get involved? 
Yeah, so look, we have a lot of requests from really eager students. Um, mm. It's just so hard for me to take them on and manage them mm. at this stage. We do have some, so mm. um, that's okay. And we will be putting out a notice, I guess, when we need them. Um, but one of the things I tell students is that to um, follow all of the legal centres that are doing this kind of work, the lawyers, the activists, the communities, the survivor mm. groups... Um, see what they're doing, follow them, become engrossed in that kind of language and, um, you know, follow them on social media and, and all of that sort of thing because you'll never know when they might be able to post something about, well, we've got an internship, come abroad. I mean, I did a traineeship with ECCHR while I was, you know, so many years into my legal practice and mm. that was really fascinating for me. because so that I was want- in Berlin? That was my Berlin, yeah, yes. the Berlin trip. Um, and what about language? Language, definitely, I would recommend that um, you take on a language. Uh, that's important because you'll know that if you travel to Europe, many of our counterparts have uh, fluency in several languages, not just two. But also, I think it also diversifies your skills and you're able to really understand uh, different cultures and you're able to work in another language. Mm. Um, and creative lawyering, I think, can also come mm. from a place of being exposed to different languages, legal languages, legal frameworks, right. certainly even in a domestic setting, working interstate That's right. um, or working somewhere in the Pacific. Yep. Um, closer to home, yeah. that can really bring, I think, yeah. um, a, a capacity or or develop a capacity to see legal yeah, problems through different prisms. Yeah, uh, and also practically because you're when if you want to work in these spaces abroad, almost all the time you'll need another language. Mm. So that's the the practical, I guess, outcome of that. Sure. When I tried to, when I was kind of confused about where I wanted to go. Um, a lot of the job advertisements and even at the International Criminal Court and international tribunals more broadly, there was always the need for another language. So that's one of the ideas. But uh, it's a really important point. It really does make you think um, creatively and differently. Yeah. Mm. And then study. Study. You've, you've yeah. done a master's, have well, you? Well, yes, I have like one course left to finish. It's just <laughs> impossible. That pesky um, final subject. Yeah, it's just like, how am I going to finish this? Um, but definitely a master's is also, I think, um, at the international level, again, if you want to work in this space, it's the minimum requirement. Mm. Um, but but obviously I think it's great to um, broaden your network Go to events where people are discussing these things. I mean, now that everything's virtual, you can really jump online to events that are being taking place on international criminal justice issues abroad. Um, so it's always, I think, really fascinating to uh, attend a webinar or a seminar and be immersed in these issues. That was what I was doing for a long time mm. um, when I had no idea what was going on and I just really wanted to be involved. And I would just go and go, oh, okay, so this is what they're talking about, you know, things like that. Um, So, yeah, I think those are the kinds of things. Follow all of the really cool radical organisations that are in this space. Um, Even, you know, academics and scholars, they also have really interesting things to say and are not confined like we are sometimes as lawyers. Um, And uh, do a master's, uh, if you can, at some point probably after some years of experience. Mm. Um, whether that's here or abroad, obviously it depends on your, your capacity and ability. 
Um, there should be plenty of scholarships, I would hope, and also uh, try and engage and learn another language. Mm. Yeah. Great tips. Great tips from <laughs> a great radical lawyer, oh, Rowan thank Ara. You. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. My it was pleasure. it was wonderful to have a chat with you. It was and really great. Yeah, I hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you so much, and thanks to all the wigs for the opportunity. And uh, I hope to keep in touch and, and see how we go in the next couple of years. Thanks to Rawan Araf for joining us on the Wigs and special thanks to work experience student Bupin for his research and the introduction to the show. The Wigs are climbing the charts and don't forget you can be a part of their skyrocketing success. All you need to do is rate, review and share the show, please. And let us know your feedback on whether you want to hear more of these kinds of interviews and anything else you'd like us to cover on the show. You can reach the Wigs on their Facebook page or at Wigs Podcast on Twitter. I'm Jim Minns, over and out. listening please like the wigs on facebook at the wigs podcast don't forget to rate and review on itunes this podcast was brought to you by minimal productions produced by jim mintz